0: My recent show with Dr. Robert Waldinger focused on the world's longest scientific study of happiness. If you heard part one in episode 109.5, you heard the results are relationships. So it's no surprise when I ask Bob what his relational values are, he cites as a priority his own social fitness. This is my values, habits, and motives show, and I walk with Bob through the key aspects of his life. Bob is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. His TED talk titled What Makes a Good Life has over 43 million views, and I highly recommend you check it out. We talk about the role spirituality plays in people's happiness, including his own. He's been married for 36 years, and we discuss quantity versus quality time together. For health and wellness, Bob strives to follow Neil Maxwell's guidance of never give up what you want most for what you want today, though we share a strong inclination toward dark chocolate that he moderates to keep his weight where he wants it. He does share that taking care of one's health is one of the two predictors of happiness. Bob addresses his mental state by meditating. He's actually a Zen master and teaches meditation all over the world. He admittedly enjoys his work, he says, and is involved in a lot and works a bit more than he should. Regarding finances, he views money as neutral after basic needs are met. But regarding the study on happiness, he cites that having money often gives people a feeling of freedom. I asked Bob about his personal interest and pursuits and he framed the question around what he does to create energy for himself, which I love. I'm going to adopt that for the show from now on. And he shared that he loves talking about interesting ideas and brainstorming and we discussed the concept of flow and he recently started taking singing and Spanish lessons. Bob's co-authored book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. It's just been released. You can find it wherever you get your books and you can connect with Bob at robertwaldinger.com. If you find value from this self-helpful podcast, subscribe and leave a review. Let people know what they can expect. Let us know what you think best thing you can do is keep the conversation going. Talk about some of what you hear from Bob today with someone else. It'll help you both digest it deeper. You can always connect with me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. Next up, Harvard professor of psychology, Dr. Robert Waldinger shares his personal values, motives, and habits. Well, Bob, just as we're talking about, what a great time to uh, discuss values and relationships right on the holiday season and coming into the new year. And I know that that's top of your list. And our first category on the spoke here is spiritual. And in part one, as we talked and I asked you, you know, where does that fit in? with your research you know with you personally and with your research and it was interesting that you said uh and i'm going to paraphrase it you tell me if i got it right that it wasn't necessarily that uh, everybody had a faith belief but by far and large most everyone did have a perspective of if not a greater power at least a greater purpose beyond themselves is that fair
1: Many of them did. Many of them did. Um, Many of them were kind of studiously not spiritual or religious. They, you know, many of them said, I I don't do that. Uh, And they were no happier. They weren't less happy than the people who were more spiritual, more religious. It was just a, a different path.
0: Interesting. And you said, as you talked about, you're Jewish and how does the, how does that affect your, or tell me about the spiritual values and what practices you put in place to be where you want to be there?
1: Yeah. Well, so I was raised, uh, in a Jewish family and, and it was uh, pretty observant and, uh, our lives centered around the Jewish community. And I loved being Jewish. I still do. And I, I love all the traditions. I just never, the theology never spoke to me. Um, the um, And I, I uh, I kept wanting to, to, when I would be in the synagogue and there'd be services, I would want to stop and, and go up to the front and say, okay, everybody, like, how many of you really believe this? Raise your hands. Really? And, of course, I didn't do that because my parents would have been really upset. Right. But uh, but it just never grabbed me. And I know there are many people of faith for whom this is just a given. You know, it's just a central part of their life. But it never grabbed me. Um, and when I was in my 30s, I encountered Buddhist philosophy someone gave me a book and I found, boy, this is the most useful way of understanding myself and and what it means to be alive in the world that I've ever found. And, and that was, for me, the path to a spiritual practice.
0: How do you see that? It, at the core of spirituality and I talk about this with every guest that I have and of course there's you know perspectives that run across the board on all accounts and if not the faith-based you know greater power or, or deity or, or whatnot over here I still I think yeah, at least in my own perspective still see people I mean by proxy of sitting there you have done something that you are trying to impart to the world and at the core spirituality again that aspect of something beyond yourself um, and I, it is of interest to me that as I seek people from all walks of life that are in the books behind me in these bookshelves that most of them do, that is a, that that's a core 10 of their life is, well, I mean, to your standpoint of focus of relationship, a connectedness. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, and that's the, so I, what I was aware of is from the time I was a teenager is that I worried a lot about stuff that really didn't matter at all. Hmm. Like, I worried about, you know, was I good enough? Was I achieving enough? Um, Was I going to be remembered after I died? And, you know, when I looked around, I realized that everybody I knew was worried about similar stuff. And really, you know, most of us are not going to be remembered 100 years from now. It's all going to be gone you know, we will have had some influence on generations, we hope. But that this worry about, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Was really uh, about something that didn't make any sense to me. And I was worried about it, too. And, and it really helped to have a kind of view, a, a kind of understanding of where that stems from, and a, and a different view of what it means to be part of life and part of the world and that's what buddhism offered me
0: and when you are so i know you you have it to the title of uh or the achievement of zen priest when you look yeah, at that and-
1: and roshi i'm actually a zen master
0: so in that do you do you categorize that i mean we're about to go through these categories and we've got you know spiritual and then we've got mind and body we've got. do you put this in the hey that is my spirituality or it's just an essence of everything that includes mind body health and wellness where do you encapsulate it
1: well it is my way of understanding myself and the world so yes it's and i and i do have a spiritual practice you know i meditate every day i i teach zen every week i i run a zen group i give dharma talks um i write articles about zen Mm -hmm. um so it's certainly my my practice and i and i feel like it's a a
0: deep part of me yeah relationships then and this flows through of course everything you do it's the highlight of your or, or the the encapsulation of your book on what makes us happy so to ask you uh, what your relational values are. I say that it's everything obviously to you, but how do, how would you give that? What are the highlights of a relationship? And you talk about social, you know, your social fitness. So what about uh, you, Bob, how would you say these are my values? This is how I walk them out in the relationships that you want. Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things that I believe, and, and Zen certainly teaches is that we are not these fixed separate beings isolated from everybody else. That's just not the truth, right? We are completely interconnected and none of us would be here except for so many chance causes and conditions and and so many people on whose shoulders we stand, right? And so, um, so my idea about relationships is really that we are all interconnected, whether we know it or not and that these ideas about separation and those are the bad guys over there and we're the good guys over here, is it's a real harmful delusion um, that all of us are manifestations of, of the universe, right? Including people I really disagree with, mm-hmm. and, and including people who I think do bad things. Yeah. It's all the universe just universing in a certain, from a certain perspective
0: are there certain categories of relationship? I mean, with your study was everyone, gosh, and I should, I feel like I should know this From the original, the original people in there was everyone married.
1: No, uh, a few people didn't marry. Almost everyone married. Cause uh-huh. that was an era when that's what everybody did. Yeah. You know, it was so rare not to marry. Um, we had gay people in the study who had heterosexual marriages because that's what you did. Right.
0: And then kids, what was the percentage there of those that went on and had kids? And and again, I I know that fits in the social construct of that's just kind of what you do, but I'm curious, did the majority have children?
1: The majority had children, uh, the great majority. And, and many of the people who didn't have children weren't able. Okay. Some of them adopted kids.
0: And when you look at that social construct and you look at, gosh, the key, the, the root of our happiness is tied in relationships. Do you still, and I say you, and I, I'm going to say you as the study and the institution, do you still look at a validity of those, or a value of those, again, social constructs, marriage and children is still pretty much highlights for us relationally?
1: Well, they were highlights for me. <laughs> they were Well you know? me, me
0: too, but I'm still asking in reference to this. Yeah, in, in what you Sure. At.
1: Yeah. Well, I think now what we see is that there are many more ways to go through life and there are many more options that are socially acceptable. Right? So you can be in a same sex partnership. You can be without a romantic partner. One in three people doesn't have a romantic partner in the United States among adults. Right. That's way higher than it used to be. So there are different ways to go through life. And I think, you know, one of the things I know is they've done studies of people who have children and people who choose not to have children. And the people with children are not happier than the people without children. They're no less happy either. It's just a different path through life. Yeah. And what I really like is that there's now more room for different paths.
0: Let me ask on that. I'm going to take advantage of what you do and your, your role and pick at it a little, not pick at it, but just, I I want to, again, take advantage of, of your uh, perspective. When you look at marriage, when you look at children and saying, look, the point is having these key deep relationships, whether it is, A marriage whether it is with children or not Um, because with the social construct that we have we do tend to do that and there's a perspective of gosh if you're not married it's almost like you're not quite whole there you haven't really experienced relationship same thing with children and it feels I guess I'm curious about that even like in a codependent aspect You know, do we really need those things? We need relationship, but what aspects of those to be whole? And I'm going to pair that, Bob, with that concept of us being whole in a sense in and of ourselves. We're made for relationship, but what we want and desire of those that's healthy and what is a a, a, really, for lack of better terms, unless you have one, a codependent aspect.
1: Yeah, well. You know, one of the things you learn when you study thousands of lives and you track people for decades is that one size never fits all, right? Yeah, right. So it's not like...
0: Right, but that's all we want. We want the pill, Bob. Give us the pill for... I'm not uh, the giving pr- you
1: the pill. I'm <laughs> giving you the truth. Okay, At least the truth as far as I know it, right? Please. Which is that there's no set way to do your life. Yeah. There's no set way to do your life right? That what we do know, we do know some things make people happier than others. Some things work out better for people than others, right? So so absolutely, it's not all up for grabs, but this idea that, well, marriage or an intimate partnership is really the way to go if you're going to have a truly fulfilled life, that's true for a great many people, but not for some people. Similarly, having children, not not what's going to make some people happy. And that's really okay. And, and I, I want to name that because I think that the culture wants the magic pill. They want to say, well, if you do these things, you're going to have a good life. And that just isn't the truth, as far as I know.
0: Is it fair then to take the label off and say, hey, it's not necessarily Marriage. I know it's elementary, but again, this is what we live under. You know, it's, yeah. not, it's not marriage. It's not even the romantic partnership. But what you get out of it is these aspects. If you can fulfill that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So what I, what I would say is that we all need at least one warm relationship. We need one safety net relationship. We need one person who would be there for us hmm. if we were in trouble if we were really hurting, if we were really scared. And that beyond that, it really depends. You know, some of us are shy. I think we talked about this in our last discussion. You know, some of us are shy. And and for those people, having a lot of people around is exhausting and, and uncomfortable. Whereas other people are extroverts and need lots of people. So I think what we all need is a few warm connections. They don't have to have a marriage license. You don't even have to live together. You just need some warm connections and they can come from any part of your life.
0: So today for you, uh, Bob, what are some of the literal habits on a given weekly basis that I could watch and, and audit you and say, gosh, here's what I see Bob doing to foster the relationships he wants. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, start with my relationship at home. So my wife and I have been married for 36 years. Mm. Um, We used to on weekdays just have dinner together because we both went to work. Um, But now because of the pandemic, I work at home. She works at home. We have lunch together and dinner together, Mm. sometimes breakfast together. And then we go off our separate ways and work. You know, uh, she works in her home office. I work here mostly in my den, but sometimes in my psychotherapy office, and then we get together for meals. But it's really important that we do that and that we talk about we talk about our work, we talk about our kids, we talk about our lives. We you know we plan things together with friends. So the first the first thing I attend to is my relationship with my wife Jennifer, and then. There's a whole set of people beyond that. I have work relationships. Um, the co-author, Mark Schultz, who I wrote this book with, you know, I just had my weekly phone call with Mark, Fridays at noon. And that's really important because, yes, we talk about our work, our research, our writing. but We also talk about our kids and our just our lives. Um, so that's a really important relationship. I have relationships in my Zen community. I teach with a buddy of mine uh, and I make sure that he and I talk regularly and we often go for walks and sometimes we'll get together as couples and we'll have a meal together. um, I mean, they're just just a number of friends who are just people I'm always in touch with, you know, at least once a week, maybe every other week. Um, We see friends socially like we usually have dinner with friends a couple times a week um so all of that becomes the kind of fabric of my life um i have i have an administrative assistant who who's a wonderful person and she and i chat and you know she knows about my life and i know about her life and and even though it's a professional relationship and you know I pay her. Um, we are we are connected, and we share what's going on in our lives, and that too is an important part. It's a work relationship, but an important one. And so, I would say that those are the kinds of those are the kinds of relationships that populate my
0: week. Yeah. We touched on this in part one, but I want to ask again in reference to you personally. And then, you know, as you see people who are happy uh, that they have relationships, that aspect of looking for different qualities and different relationships and specifically looking at marriage, which it's feels like we very much culturally have fallen into a place of kind of looking to the marriage, especially as we're more and more isolated, that we look at that one marriage. We intend to fall into looking at it for everything And yet you just talked about so many different people in so many different areas that for me, free up your wife from having to be everything to you. She's not, go ahead.
1: Exactly. I mean, good example. So I really started seriously practicing Zen about 20 years ago. Jennifer has never been interested in meditation. She's not interested in Zen, but she fully supports me she's, she's so invested in my doing it because I care about this. Similarly, she is really into music. It is her happy place. She's a great pianist and she plays the piano and just loses herself in that practice. Right. And I'm trying my best to be really supportive of that. I make sure that she gets her time to do that and that, no, I'm there when she's giving a recital, and right. So, so what we do is we we try to support each other in doing different things. So I and she she's fine with my having very important relationships in my Zen community. She knows those people and and likes those people, but they're they're people that that I get many things from that I don't get in my primary relationship right does that make sense and, and so yes. we, we need to have that and we need to allow each other to have those kinds of relationships
0: yeah, yeah yes it does make sense but i'm asking because it's not how again cu- the cultural concept and uh, again how we seem to have fallen into yeah a more isolated Uh, livelihood and i found that oh my gosh we're it's cause it feels like it's causing us to rely so much on so few people if not just one for everything and so it's been in the latter parts latter years of my marriage where we've kind of wait a minute we can have yeah i i go over here I i have a whole life in athletics that she's not a part of and i have people and I'm just starting to do, I've got a trip coming up to uh, Mexico with a with 10 guys that she knows oh, one of them kind of, and, yeah. and kind of freeing ourselves up from yeah. that, but it t- it's taken a long time coming and now I'm starting to advocate it. So to hear it from you is very confirming.
1: Well, and to, and like what we have to know is that there's nothing wrong with our relationship if we go elsewhere for some of our needs, right? Yeah. That, that, you know you you get to hang out with your buddies in Mexico right uh that's really important that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your marriage it just means you get different things yeah same here yeah
0: ah beautiful thank you um health and wellness bob is is the next one and first off i was curious you know as as in part of your as as your study Kind of where that ranked in regards to happiness, because I look at capacity and not to just elevate health and wellness in and of itself, but if it's a vehicle or a, an aspect of me that allows me to, to feel joy and hope without being burdened down with it, did it come out statistically somewhat as far as happiness in regards to health and wellness, just feeling well, thinking well?
1: Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. Uh, health and wellness are way high up as important for our happiness um, and you know as you can imagine health is connected to relationships if if we're not feeling well we have less energy available to connect with other people and so they really do influence each other they're not separate um, people who lose their health often become more isolated from other people hmm. but health taking care of our health was one of the two strongest predictors of well-being the other one was uh relationships and taking care of our health means right regular exercise going to the doctor to get your preventive health care not abusing alcohol or drugs excuse me eating right not becoming obese not smoking those are the biggies um and, and they were huge
0: so tell me about your personal practices in that health yeah. and wellness category
1: sure okay well I exercise every day um, usually either I'll go for like a three mile walk or I will um, I will do some kind of you know cardio or weight training um, so I do something every day for half hour to 60 minutes and then um i meditate every day which i consider part of my spiritual practice but also a health benefit as well um and um i actually i weigh myself every day because i find that if i weigh myself i keep track of my weight and i don't it's so easy for me to put on weight Mm -hmm. if i'm not watching And I find that if I just keep track of it, uh, I just adjust my eating to make sure my weight doesn't keep going up.
0: Interesting. So Uh, tell me about your eating. Any specific dietary uh, structure you stick to?
1: Yeah. And that's really thanks to Jennifer because Jennifer loves to cook. It's one of her big hobbies. And so um, she makes really healthy food. Not a lot of prepared foods uh we don't do a lot of takeout actually but that's because jennifer likes to cook so a lot of vegetables a lot of fresh vegetables fresh fruit um not a lot of meat like we do eat chicken and and like on rare occasions maybe for special holidays we'll have red meat because we both grew up in the midwest and we love red meat yeah um but uh you know a lot of fish and a lot of uh vegetarian meals um and uh, and that seems to work for us. We both can maintain our weight through diet and exercise.
0: When you say you adjust your diet if you need to, is that by food the the, the food that you eat, or just a quantity?
1: I eat less chocolate on the days. <laughs> when I'm, I'm a real okay. I'm a real chocolate nut. So I love chocolate, and sometimes I'll have chocolate like two or three times a day and I just cut back on that, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's my, that's my prime. Okay. You got to tell me what kind of chocolate that's my vice, man. I, I,
1: Oh yeah. Okay. For me, it's a dark chocolate.
0: Yep. Me too.
1: Um, I'm not a real milk chocolate fan, although I will, I will eat milk chocolate in a pinch and um, you know, I I ordered different kinds of chocolate, like, especially during the pandemic I started trying different, you know, chocolate makers and, and sellers and and that's been really fun yeah um there's a company actually right here in in the boston area called taza t-a-z-a which uh has it's a kind of i think mexican process of chocolates and i really enjoy them so i order stuff from them yeah uh
0: okay well that's that's uh that actually gets into the spiritual category for me is the chocolate (laughs) exactly yeah i appreciate that greatly i have i used to say i don't have a sweet tooth i have a sweet belly and i've to try to keep on top of that so good chocolate dark chocolate and uh not not too much usually so yeah yeah Mind and mental health is next. And I know we've talked about that. You just talked about meditating. But as you look at that, I did want to ask, you know, when you, again, back to the study and looking at those who are happy. The I don't know how to ask it or to define it better than the mental state, whether they were doing it intentionally or not. But the mental state. If you said, "Yeah, gosh, I, I experienced that," these the happiest people tend to have less stressful lives. Just to you know, put something out there. What did you find in regards to mental state?
1: Well, a lot of people took care of their mental state. So if if they were having trouble, they would get help. Sometimes it was. From friends or from a spouse. And sometimes they would get therapy. Uh, you know, a number of them were in psychotherapy, sometimes individual psychotherapy, sometimes uh, couples therapy if they were trying to work out some relationship difficulties. And, uh, you know, w- when you train as a psychiatrist, particularly as a psychoanalyst, you it's a requirement when you train as a psychoanalyst to, to be psychoanalyzed. And I did that and it was enormously helpful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I found that it's so added to my sense of well being and to my self acceptance. And, uh, so I'm a great believer in therapy. I actually, that's my clinical specialty. So I, I see patients in psychotherapy mm-hmm. every weekday. Um, and I'm a, I'm a great believer in taking care of your mental health. A, a little investment goes a long way.
0: So again, to you personally, your, your practice is your primary investment. So if you look at day-to-day, you talked about meditate. Uh, are there any other specific things that you are pretty habitual in doing to maintain the mental state you want to be in?
1: I think that's it. Meditation, exercise, and connecting with people. Uh, those are kind of the three biggies for me.
0: Where is Bob most at risk? Where do you have to give affirmative action to your own mental state where you can, you know, where can you, where are your weaknesses? I would say.
1: Yeah. Well, I think my weakness is I can, um, I can imagine that people don't want to see me that I've, you know, that I've said something wrong or that I can be really hard on myself. And often I have to go back and, Connect with people and check it out to realize oh no 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 actually that was fine yeah. uh, so i can tend to be very self-critical mm. and i think that's a place where you know psychotherapy has helped a lot in that regard um and also just making sure i connect with people when i'm telling myself some story about having been wrong or bad
0: Okay, let me ask about that in regards to what I asked earlier about the, in essence, being whole, whole-ish, wholer, in and of yourself, and needing relationship but not needing to fill those things. You just have said self-critical. So in that, is there a, I think there's a risk for all of us, but I'll ask it for you, of looking for a little, a little validation, a little out affirmation elsewhere instead of feeling it internally.
1: Absolutely. Uh, um, you know, look, I've been at Harvard my whole career. I mean, you don't come to Harvard unless you're looking for some validation, right? <laughs>
0: okay, fair, fair enough. There are, a lot
1: of, there are a lot of folks around here who are really hungry for validation. Um, what I've come to understand is that we all need that. We all need external validation. That's not a problem. It can't all come with from within. They're the, it's the highly unusual person who needs nothing Hmm. and by way of validation from the outside world um you know i expect it matters to you whether people find your podcast valuable right you know
0: it does but on this topic i'm where's the line though because i know i can cross over that and it becomes an unhealthy aspect
1: exactly and so that's what i've had to work with like when am i seeking validation even though it's not really me, it's not what I want. It's not what I believe in. It's, you know, whatever. I'm just doing it to get applause, right? Or now these days doing it on social media to get likes. Yeah. Like, when am I doing that? And whenever I do that, I really can sense it pretty quickly now. Okay. That there's an empty quality to it for me where I realize, you know, this is just not who I am. It's taken me a long time to learn to recognize that. Rather than just saying, "Well, other people value this, so it ought to be good." I'll just do it. Um, so that's a that's been a lifelong practice for me.
0: Well, I like how you put it. it where where am I? I? may play with that a little bit because where am I doing it? Because I'm looking for applause because I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling a little insecure, and so I'm looking for something to fill me up opposed as opposed to where am I looking for to see? Gosh, am, am I doing a good job? It's um, like Rabbi Daniel Lapin is one of the quotes that I attribute to him is that money is a certificate of appreciation. And I appreciate, I, I like that. It's a certificate yeah, of appreciation. Yeah. If you're providing value, it's worthy of being, you know, paid for that, getting in a certificate of appreciation. That same thing. If I'm looking for that, how is my work doing? Is it providing value? Am I getting good testimony? Um, cause that shows that I'm giving value that feels healthy. But, uh, over here. If I fall into, man, I'm, I am feeling insecure. I need something to fill me up.
1: Yeah. And, and sometimes people do really self-destructive things as a way to try to Fill themselves up, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's more room to do that on social media now than there used to be. True. Uh, and so there's there's um, it's a it's something that each of us, I think, has to work with the balance between getting affirmation from outside and knowing that we're okay. No, know, and knowing what we want. Yeah. No matter what anybody thinks. So you know, like like here I am you know, I'm publicizing this new book. And you could really, I could really let that go to my head. You know, I'm talking with really bright people like you who have big audiences. And I could think, boy, you know, that's a big deal. I'm really important. But actually, that's kind of empty. And what I have to come back to is that What I'm doing, the work I've done, the ideas I'm putting out there really matter to me. When I come back to that, that feels okay. That feels authentic. That feels like, okay, that's worth doing. But uh, just being invited to be on one more podcast, no.
0: (laughs) That's fair. No, I appreciate you putting it that way. That's uh, something to grapple with continually. Uh, well, on that, the next category is work and career and business. Uh, even reading your bio, uh, you're professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. You're director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. Co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation, a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. You direct psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. You're a Zen master. Uh, yeah, now you're author, you're speaker. It's a lot. It is a lot. So looking at that as you balance, you know, here's what I value, here's what you're excited about, uh, but here are how do you keep that in line for one? I'll just start there.
1: Well, that's a that's a really good question and I'm working on it every day. Like I I work more than I should and my wife who's a clinical psychologist works more than she should and we both agree that this is, you know, We need to, first of all, we're both getting older. I mean, this is not a long-term plan to keep working as much as, but we really care about the things we're doing. And that's what the practice is for me to keep checking in. Am I still doing things that I care about? And am am I harming myself by working too hard? Or is this okay so far? And most of the time, it's okay. Most of the time, I'm not overly stressed. I'm sleeping okay, I'm taking care of myself, I'm taking care of my relationships. And I like doing this. So, you know, for me, like, it's not like I've been waiting to retire so I can go play golf, or so I can develop a magnificent garden in my yard. It's those aren't my interests. So for me, um, studying human life, which is what I do, and teaching Zen and teaching young psychiatrists to talk and listen to patients, um, those feel like really meaningful, energizing activities. So I'm still doing it. There's going to come a time when I can't do those things anymore, or maybe don't want to do those things anymore.
0: So let me ask in regards to the study again as you look at happiness and measuring that looking at the stats with folks where did how did work fall into that and primarily as you just said meaningful energizing activities as a meaning those who were involved in such work as opposed to those who weren't it was primarily just a mode for a paycheck
1: yeah and there were both kinds in our study, there were people who just went to work and it was a paycheck and often work ground them down. You know, it was demoralizing to just go and put in the time and get your paycheck and go home. Some people, and actually the happiest people, would turn those situations when they could into more energizing situations by making connections with other people at work. Hmm. And so, Maybe they didn't love making the widgets that they made, but maybe they had buddies at work. Maybe they had people who they cared about and who cared about them and they could share their lives with. And so for them, going to work was really meaningful, even though they didn't love the thing that they were doing per se. Other people loved what they were doing. They were passionate about it. Um, And that, that was a real... A uh, gift to be able to love what they did every day.
0: You mentioned retirement, and I had that discussion earlier today uh, with a couple other friends, and I, on that aspect of being involved in something that you do care about, it does energize you. It inspires you, is the word that we were talking about. I, at fifty-two years old, am very focused on my health and wellness to enable me just to keep doing what I'm doing, because I don't know why I would be like retiring from the thing that gives you the most inspiration. I have no desire to. And so it's curious as again, as you've seen these so many people and seen generations go through. Yeah. How that fit. How did, yeah. How did retirement, how was that pursued by some of those?
1: Well, retirement was a different thing for many people back then than it is now like okay. that was a time when many people had one job they worked yeah. at it their whole lives and right. then they were t- and so it was kind of all or nothing then they they got to retirement age they stopped they had a party they got the gold watch they went home yeah. that was it and those people some of them were deer in the headlights hmm. like they didn't know what to do and the people who ended up happiest in retirement were the people who found new relationships, who replaced their workmates with new kinds of playmates. You know, it might have been golf buddies. It might have been uh, hiking friends. It, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been volunteering for, you know, a soup kitchen or other community groups um, or church activities. Right. Um So so really what we found was that the the retirement for many people was a kind of cliff that they dropped off and then they had to find a new life. What we're finding now is that, first of all, many people, most people don't have just one job and that's it. Mm -hmm. They will go from job to job. Many people find ways to do part-time work even after they've officially left a full-time job. I actually piece together a number of things. I don't have one full time job. I do a set of things and I could dial back one of those, but not the others, right? If I choose to. Um, Many more people are doing that kind of work now than in the World War II generation that were our original participants.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, Right off the heels of that is money, which, you know, to your study, what makes people happy? And of course, we culturally put that at the top of the list. But uh, tell us again where that fell.
1: Yep. Well, money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you unhappy. Uh, it's kind of neutral once you get your basic needs met. So and I think you and I talked about yep. this, that they have actually done a study that, you know. You need your basic needs met. And and one estimate a few years ago in the U.S. was $75,000 a year, household income. But basically somewhere, you know, seventy five dollars $100,000, that before that, it really matters. Like having more money makes a big difference in your happiness because it really changes your well-being. But once you get above that, it doesn't matter much at all. And so pursuing more money is... Uh, It's kind of a, it's a personal preference, but it's not going to make you happier.
0: So how about Bob? What makes Bob happy in regards to money?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like the lifespan research foundation that I founded, it was to try to share more of these ideas with people, the ideas we've learned in the research. And after I gave uh, that Ted talk Mm -hmm. seven years ago, I got invited to give talks for a lot of money. And before that, before that, I never, you know, I got, I gave talks at medical conferences and community groups about my research, and I would get no money or maybe $500 if I was being really highly paid. Suddenly they were offering me lots of money. I didn't want to make money. It wasn't interesting to me, but I really wanted to get these ideas out. So I would get highly paid for some talks and then Give those funds, give all that, every, every penny I earned giving talks, I gave to the Lifespan Research Foundation hmm. to, um, to fund our activities, getting more of this out there, right? And so for me, that felt more meaningful than adding to my bank account. I, you know, I've worked my whole life. I made enough money. It's okay. Uh, I'm not rich, but I'm very comfortable. And I don't need to be more than that.
0: Again, looking at the research and the people in there. So for the assuming, you know, for those who got their basic needs met, was there any correlation to an amount or was it simply the perspective that they had on that? Was it savers? Was it investors or was there really no delineation?
1: I think it was people who felt that money gave them freedom. I mean one of the things that you know that if you you know for example we got to a point where in, in my life I I didn't have any debt anymore and that meant that I could I had the freedom to do things that weren't as highly paid. I could have done things as a psychiatrist that were much more highly paid but that I don't enjoy as much.
0: Right.
1: And so this gave me the freedom. So living, essentially what, what I've found, and I think many of our study participants found, is if you if you live well within your means, you know, if you're not like living paycheck to paycheck and extending yourself as far as you can um, materially, that then there's a kind of freedom. There's a kind of comfort. Oh, then we can do the things we want to do. And, and if an opportunity comes along that's not well paid, but I, I would love doing it, I get to do it. Hmm you know, so that's been a, a set of choices I've made. And and we've certainly studied some people in our research who have, who have had sort of similar paths where they're really not primarily focused on making money. Uh, but they, they have a, a a financial cushion. That's enough that they don't worry about money. They don't lie awake nights worrying about money. Right.
0: Bob, the last category here, we call it Achievements and interests, and just today, I've been doing this for years. And just today, yeah. I got a little bit of a, a different nuance. I'm going to ask you about, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to come into it after asking again in regards to the study achievements. Where did you see happiness? In regards to people's achievements, the things that they took pride in for, man, I I did this, and the hope of, I really want to achieve that. How did those things factor in?
1: They factored in complicated ways. So, winning prizes, you know, becoming the CEO, winning the Nobel Prize, whatever it is might or might not make you happy particularly becoming the ceo it depends on if you like being a ceo some people became you know heads of companies and they didn't enjoy it right so achievement for its own sake uh doesn't make people happy but maybe you love being a ceo and then you're really happy that you're doing it right so it really depends on what lights you up what energizes you whether a particular achievement is worth it, whether it makes you happy.
0: So the achievement in, itself, in and of itself is benign somewhat. It depends on whether you're doing it for, let's say the right reasons, maybe healthy reasons or authentic reasons or not.
1: Authentic reasons. I would say authentic reasons.
0: Okay. Um,
1: because otherwise people, you know, people will, will, will work toward a goal their whole lives. They'll achieve that goal and then they'll get depressed. And often they get depressed because they've held on to this idea that, well, once I get to that place, then I'll be truly happy. And they realize, no, that doesn't make them happy.
0: Let me ask the same thing then in regards to you just talked about or mentioned, I think the term was the things that energize you. So if we put those in the terms of self-care, in essence – uh, whether that is you know your wife playing piano or somebody else dancing or you know somebody golfing or doing art or whatever, where did you see that fit into happiness in regards to people investing in those pursuits?
1: Yeah you know I think of it with this psychological concept that 's sometimes called flow, and flow is just that idea that you 're in you 're in an activity so completely that you're not even aware of time. And you're not even thinking that much about yourself. You're just in it. Like, you know, it could be skiing down a ski slope. It could be, you know, my wife's case, playing the piano. For me, it could be meditating, where I'm just like in the present moment. And I think that what what I would wish for most people is that they find something that puts them in that state, Mm -hmm. something they like to do where they just lose track of everything except the activity, that that's a really wonderful thing to have in your life.
0: I had Stephen Kotler on the show once, and we're about to have him back on. And he, of course, has the Flow Institute and uh, has been somewhat of my muse, though I just bought the book, the original, in essence, from Mahaley. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name.
1: Oh, high, yeah.
0: Thank you. Yes, that one. I So I have it. I just opened it. I think it was before Christmas and I haven't gotten to it yet. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to dive into that. Okay, so for you, I'll ask it in that frame of reference. What do you do? Where's your flow? Where do you experience that?
1: Mm, okay. Uh, my flow is in meditation. Uh-huh. My flow is in talking about interesting ideas with friends and with colleagues, like some kind of like brainstorming. I love brainstorming sessions where we're all just trying to come up with something, you know, where we're trying to solve a problem or create something new. Like I find that's a, a time when I can really lose track of time and, and really just be in it.
0: It's just been recently, Bob, that I have been talking about this and investigating flow and myself, I w- easily experience that on a mountain bike. Just yeah, don't yeah. want to do them, I think I experience it running, but it was recently talking to somebody here, and I realized I experience it here having a conversation around a topic that I enjoy. And the other one was just what you said: brainstorming sessions to take an idea or a problem, and how can we deal with that? What can we do to address that? That's a state of of flow. Well, let me ask you: in addition to that as far as interest that you have, hobbies that you have other anything that you invest in consistently because it just brings you inspiration, energy, however you want to term it?
1: Hi. A couple of things. I started taking singing lessons. Wow. Because I and I never sang before. It's been really a trip. It like stretches me and takes me out of my comfort zone. And it's really fun to to make music in that way.
0: What was the catalyst uh, for that?
1: uh okay my zen teacher's daughter is a singing teacher Hmm. and she came to my zen group and gave us a little lesson on chanting because every week at my zen group we do a chanting service and so enjoyed her teaching that i i said "Could i come and just take a lesson with you once and i did and and then kept going wow um and the other thing, which I'm just picking up again, is um, the, the one language I can speak at all is Spanish. And I've always really enjoyed speaking Spanish. And sometimes I've, I've spent time in Spanish-speaking countries. And sometimes I'll watch movies or read novels in, in Spanish. And so I've just started taking Spanish lessons again. I've got a tutor. He lives in Spain. And, and we're going to do this an hour a week. And, uh, it's just, and it's just for the sheer pleasure. It's like, you know, no, nobody's given me a grade. I just enjoy the language and the culture.
0: In addition to the pleasure of it, it's interesting that both of those things are learning new skills. I'm curious about the, especially as you talk about you're getting older and whatnot, the cognitive, because as we read more about that, uh, the cognitive training aspect of that is significant.
1: Yeah. And I think they do find that staying engaged, learning new things, um, is associated with staying sharper longer. Now, does this mean I'm going to prevent my ever getting demented? No. (laughs) You know, I have no control over that. But I do think that staying mentally engaged and emotionally engaged with people, with activities has been shown it's not that i think that it has been shown to be connected with staying sharper longer as we get older
0: i do i do want to ask one more question just in regards to the study with this if and i'm going to call it again hobbies would have been kind of an older terminology but an outside interest or activities outside of your vocational work or the things that you need to do to be productive, that these are a, I guess I don't want to say non-productive, but I'm not sure of a better term for it, yeah, but they're
1: non-productive. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. Well then go ahead. So in the study of those who were happy, was there a higher percentage of people who invested in that, who gave it a more, maybe more priority?
1: You know, I don't know. We could probably go back and look at our data In that way, but we haven't done that. It's a great question. What would your guess be? I would, my guess would be particularly as people got older, that the ones who were happier had, you know, had hobbies that were not productive. In Mm -hmm. fact, I know one of our happiest people, the guy in the book who we call Leo, Mm -hmm. um, loved to sail. Mm -hmm. Uh, He built his own sailboat when he was a teenager and all the way through his life until he taught his grandchildren to sail he just loved sailing there's nothing productive he wasn't like on a sailing boat catching fish for a living he was just sailing right Uh, a great love of his
0: i've just become more curious in that question somewhat in regards to flow Because as you talk about, you started singing lessons, you've taught taught, you're taking Spanish lessons that those are inspiring. They give you some energy. My guess is you don't experience flow in those you experience flow in the thing that, well, this is some of my curiosity. And I, I pondered it with Steven a little bit and I want to do it more of the aspect of experiencing flow primarily in those areas where you have some level of mastery. What do you think?
1: I bet you're right, or at least some comfort, right? So it's harder to experience flow when you're like, I don't know what this is. Uh, This is foreign territory. It's harder to experience flow. Um, And so that's why I expect, you know, when you're learning a sport, you don't experience flow. But when you're like doing it and you've done it for a long time and you're comfortable doing it, that's when you may get into that flow state. Similarly, brainstorming, it's like I sit there with people and I go, oh, yeah, this is so familiar. This sitting around the table, batting around ideas, you know, it's its a comfort zone.
0: That's a comfort zone. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, because it's you're fully present. You have to be just like me barreling down a mountain on a mountain bike. I'm, fully, I'm not just daydreaming out there. I'm fully present. And yet it's a comfort level to where the mind can go to some different places as well. Yeah, I'm not terrified yeah. at all. Interesting. Yeah, yeah interesting yeah. ah just uh yeah i could do this all this is flow thank you for letting me experience it
1: i'm i'm really enjoying it too kevin
0: yeah it's great to spend time with you uh again and i'm just this is the kind of information that i long for people to hear as they pursue happiness because you've gotten to some well to the majority i think of the root issues so um grateful for the work well, you do. And-
1: And I really appreciate you talking about this, you know, and putting it out there, like, you know, talking to people about what, what their real lives are like, you know, like, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I'm, I I think I'm answering you as truthfully as I can, as opposed to curating things, just showing you my happiest images, right?
0: Yep. And
1: and so I really appreciate what you're doing. Ah, thank you. Asking people to just talk about what life is really like for them.
0: Well, it's um, I, I, I'm grateful that people testify that it brings great value to them. It sure does to me because I feel like I'm the greatest beneficiary as I get to talk with you, but uh, happy, so happy to bring it to tens of thousands of people. So, Bob, thank you for doing this again with me. Thanks for the work you do. I'm eager to continue hearing about it and hearing what you find out and what you put out there.
1: I will keep you posted, and I do hope our paths will keep crossing. This has been really a pleasure. Thank you, Bob.
0: All right, friends, there you have Robert Waldinger. Once again, I really encourage you type his name in along with TED Talk and check out his video that's been viewed over 43 million times. It's just really profound. He's a great speaker. His book, The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness, can be found wherever you get your books. And you can connect with Bob at RobertWaldinger.com. Thanks again for choosing to tune into this self helpful podcast. I hope you got value and it'd be great if you would let us know by leaving a review. And I really hope you take some of what. Bob shared and talk about the concepts with someone else. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others.